0: We got news, we got clips, what you really want to know? Uh, entertaining guests, ain't no telling who you might see Entertaining guests, like it ain't telling who he might be You can say anything in your rap if you really heat Like bada boom and bada bada bow and bada bada beam If you join the show, then you might learn a little couple things Like how I'm trying to make this bar rhyme with positivity Like how I'm trying to say I'm unselfish with magnanimity This show might just change somebody's life with a possibility yeah, that's the word for it. Man, I told you this song's too long. We need to cut it a little bit, just a little bit. You know, it's too long. you
1: can't. And now, podcasting with pride from a downriver suburb of the greatest city in the world, Detroit. It's Wednesday night. Welcome back to Bright Side of the Hump. We are here to get you on that glide to the weekend. It's February 15th, and I hope your Valentine's Day was romantic, fantastic, and all Hallmark told you it could be. We're over halfway through February, everyone, so give yourselves a pat on the back. Old Man Winter is on his old bony geezer knees at this point. Tonight's guest joins us from the Big Apple. He's a remarkably successful stand-up comedian, and that's his second career after one in finance on Wall Street. The Ivy League-educated Sean Eli will chat with us in a moment. First, though, Crisis Text Line provides mental health support via text by simply typing HOME, H-O-M-E to 741741 and connecting you to a counselor who can share mental health resources. It's a wonderful practical, life-saving service that needs three things from us, volunteers, money, and help getting the word out on social media. Go to the webpage for this podcast and click on the donate link for all the details on how you can help. Patrons of The Bright Side, we have in our midst one of the smartest stand-up comedians working today. He's a New York Times-featured, Ivy League-educated laugh factory whose headline shows on five different continents. He spent two decades on Wall Street after graduating from the Wharton School of Business at Penn. He operates the Ivy League of Comedy. His jokes have been used by Jay Leno, Jimmy Fallon, and Conan O'Brien, and... He can race a dragon boat with the best of them. Ladies and gentlemen, this man could make Marie Antoinette laugh at his guillotine jokes. Without further ado, please welcome Sean Eli to Bright Side of the Hump. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Now that everybody hates me, I do have to point
2: out that uh, there is no actual IQ test required to be a comedian, so... (laughs)
1: very good you were part of the Wall Street in the 80s Sean how much did the Gordon gecko line greed is good match the pulse of the financial industry in that era I think I started in 90s so I will deny any knowledge of
2: that okay fair I, I was not on the crummy end I was not on the you know taking companies private and disassembling them and firing people
1: part You were on the clean side Oh I was on the nice side very nice and it was all puppies and pizza with my side of the business. <laughs> very good well you're from new jersey originally right home to a oh no, no 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 don't say that no i'm from new york no i wrote an article on comed- lawyers
2: who became comedians for new jersey lawyer magazine but i'm neither a lawyer nor from new jersey
1: well you know new jersey had all kinds of funny people i was going to include you amongst them but that's okay who were some of the comedians you admired uh wait who are the funny people from new jersey <laughs> Jerry Lewis, Flip Wilson, Jon Stewart, Bill, Bill Maher, and Chris Christie. Yeah, okay. I, I'm going to dispute some of that list. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, but,
2: yeah, Jon Stewart's very funny. I You know, people ask me who my inspirations were, and I feel like a jerk saying I don't know that I have inspirations, but there's a lot of really funny people to look up to in comedy. And so, Sure. So, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, uh, Rita Rudner, and I could name, you know, half a dozen people nobody's heard of who are the funniest people in the country. I guess you're known as a clean comic, correct? Yes. When I started in comedy, I was given advice that said, if you can be clean, be clean, because it gives you more performing opportunities. Because if you're a dirty comic, you really, the only place you can work pretty much is comedy clubs, unless you're big enough that you can sell out theaters. But if you're a clean comic i do corporate events i do charity fundraising events i've done private parties in people's houses or backyards so if you're clean you know i do shows in synagogues and
1: all those are opportunities that comics who aren't clean don't have that's an excellent point uh it's not a moral opposition to it oh not at all right i
2: mean there's a time and a place for everything. I don't think somebody should go into a synagogue and be a dirty comic, and the synagogue <laughs> wouldn't appreciate it either. But right. if people know what they're going to see then and, and they like it, that's fine. Listen, I don't happen to like hip-hop, but I don't dispute it as an art form. And
1: if people want to go hear hip-hop, go. What's the worst thing about going to an Ivy League school, Sean? Um, well, my parents would probably say the tuition.
2: <laughs> um <laughs> I don't know. I never really thought of it that way because I guess for some people, it's very competitive. For some people, it's stressful. But I just pretty much did what I wanted to do.
1: And I didn't graduate with a
2: 4.0.
1: Yeah, right. That means you didn't try too hard. That's good. You still got your diploma in the end. I didn't want to make the people who, who cared about GPAs feel bad by getting better grades than they did. You are very generous. That's oh, yes. kind of you. Yes, yes, magnanimous. While you were working in finance, were you kind of plotting your escape? Not at the beginning. I mean, I started in stand-up comedy in 2003, and I
2: left finance in 2009. And it wasn't something I'd ever thought about doing. And then somebody talked me into trying stand-up comedy. And after a few years, I realized I sort of had two jobs. I was a comedian at, at night, and I was you know, a banker during the day, and I didn't want to do both of them anymore. So I said, I was fortunate I could say enough already and
1: left. I gave up the lucrative one in favor of the fun one. And I think that was the right decision. That's excellent. Can you talk a little bit more about the specific thing that that sparked you to even give it a try in the first place? Woman on a date. All
2: right. Uh, I'd been actually, I started writing jokes for late night TV in, I don't know, 1991 or 1992, Whenever, whenever it was that Jay Leno started on The Tonight Show. I called and I pitched myself as a freelance writer and I started submitting jokes. And I guess on the date, I happen to mention this because I think it's a selling point for, you know, women always say the number one quality they're looking for in a guy is a sense of humor. So it's certainly worth bragging about, especially if you're not funny on the date. But I guess she thought I was funny and she said, I should try stand up comedy. She had done it a bunch and, and thought, you know, maybe I should give it a try.
1: That sparked where you are today. How about that? Yeah, You know, one date changed my life. Yeah. That's a, they could make a, a rom-com about that. Well, you know, you, people talk about what factors
2: are necessary for success or what you should be doing. And I think most things in life are completely random. And if you think about career choices or classes you take in college or having a good or bad or influential or non-influential teacher or winning or losing a sporting event or meeting somebody, so much of what happens to you is totally beyond your control.
1: Which makes it all all the more interesting.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I suppose scary, too, because there are people who plan their whole life and it doesn't work the way they planned
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. What's the most remarkable gig you've ever performed? Remarkable? I don't know. In what way? Uh, for you, you choose. Uh, remarkable from, a, oh, that didn't go as well as I hoped it would go, or remarkable in terms of that went better than I ever could have anticipated, or you know, something crazy happened whatever. All right. You want crazy stories? Yeah, let's
2: hear it. All right. Yeah. I was reminded of this uh, yesterday. I was doing a corporate event about 10 years ago and it was their holiday party. And the guy who hired me said, our company has a rule. We can't have an open bar at our events. So what I did was I got a bunch of, you know, American express or or visa gift cards. And I said they were going to be used as door prizes but what I actually did, he told me, is I went to the bartender and I said, it's an open bar until these guards are empty. So until the money runs out, it's an open bar. <laughs> and he told the staff that. So, of course, the staff's attitude is, well, if I want to drink, I better get drunk fast because they're going to cut off the bar when the money's gone. So some of the people there are really drunk. Yeah. And when you're a comic at a comedy club or even a the theater, if, if somebody's unruly, you can deal with them. You can be mean if you have to. You can't really do that at a corporate event. Right. So I'm um, I'm doing I think I'm doing about a half hour set. And I mentioned, you know, sometimes in my set I mention I'm Jewish and I have some jokes about that. And I mentioned I'm Jewish and a guy stands up, very, very drunk guy, stands up and gives a let's call it a nineteen thirties and forties German salute. Oh Jesus. And said the inappropriate words that go with that salute. Jesus. Oh. And what I should have done, if I had more courage, what I should have done is just said, I don't get paid enough to put up with this nonsense, thrown the mic down and walked out. That's what I should have done. Sure. Uh, What I did is, you know, because he was, he was, by the way, he was disruptive the whole way through. And I tried everything I could think of, you know, your annual review is tomorrow morning. HR is at the table over there, you know, everything I could do to get him to stop being disruptive. And I couldn't. And then when he did that, I said, you know what, I'll bet you $20, you can't shut the hell up for the rest of my set. And he said, deal. And I said, no, put your money down. I put $20 (laughs) on the table. He put $20 on the table. He shut up for the rest of the set. (laughs) And when I said, good night, he said, hi, win. And I said, best $20 I ever spent. Oh, my Lord. Three people came over to me and gave me, I only took the first one, but three people came over to me to hand me $20
1: bills. Uh, And I hope he got fired, but I have no idea. uh, um, What year is this that this occurs? Uh, I can look it up if you really want. Uh, Just Uh, in general, like, I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine a person continuing to work for a company when they do that. Uh, um,
2: I don't I remember the name of the parent company. I don't remember the name of the subsidiary that hired me. So I can't look it up on my calendar easily. But let's say it was 10 years ago. I mean, it was not, you know, 1956. That's awful. But yeah. the way you I,
1: handled it, it's marvelous. But I, I understand what you mean about, you know, like, you know, walking out would have been completely reasonable. I think, you know, I think I can tell you a happier story. Yeah, let's. <laughs> it's a sad story with a happy ending. Okay.
2: So when I was a new comic, so I was probably doing stand-up comedy three or four years, I heard that there was going to be an arts festival in New York. And so I went to the guy, run, and they said they might have stand-up comedy. So I went to the guy running it, and I said, because back then I was doing open mic nights, and you got to pay five bucks to, to do an open mic basically in New York. Five dollars or buy a drink, and you get five minutes. And the audience is just other comedians, so it's, it's practice talking, but you don't really learn much from it. So... I go down and I meet the guy and I say, I want to be, you know, are you going to have stand-up comedy? Yes. I said, you know, how much time do I get? And it's something he hadn't thought about. And he said, how's 15 minutes? And I would never done 15 minutes before. I had 15 minutes worth of material, but I'd never done a 15-minute set. And longer sets are harder when you're new. Sure. Because you've, you've got to have the energy, keep the energy up and you got to remember it. So he said, but there's a $15 entry fee. And I'm like, that sounds reasonable. So I give him the 15 bucks. I show up, and the arts festival, There's on my night, there's one comedian, there's musicians, there's kids, you know, dance troupes. and backstage is so crowded that we have to be in a different room, and we can't watch the people who go before us. They just come get us when it's our turn. So they come get me, and they introduce me, and I go out on stage, and there's, I don't know, 35 people in the audience, blank stares. I don't think I got a smile for eight minutes. Ugh. And then maybe by like 10 or 11 or 12 minutes, I had a few people laughing. And by the end, they were okay. But, you know, when you have in your first eight minutes, you have 30 punch lines and you're not getting even a smile. I felt like I was performing for an audience that didn't speak English. It was just awful. Yeah. And I left pretty much in tears. And that was a Sunday night. I By the way, I was still a banker at the time. Monday morning at lunchtime, I'm in a store. This is the most amazing coincidence. I'm in a store and a guy comes over to me and he said, you were very funny last night. And I said, well, I am a stand-up comedian, but uh, not last night. I was awful last night. And he said, no, you were funny. And I said, I didn't get a laugh for 10 minutes. And he said, do you know what you followed? And I said, no, I couldn't see the person before me. What was it? And he said, it was a woman who told a story Her life story about being sold and basically forced into an arranged marriage as a young teenager and being beaten and assaulted and sexually assaulted on a daily basis by her husband until she could escape and made her way to America. He said, we were crying when you took the stage and you cheered us up. People talk about other comedians or what it's hard to follow. That was the hardest thing I ever had to follow.
1: Of course. Uh, you know, no one's primed to laugh. Like you said, it, the, the gentleman even recognized that you were funny. You just brought them back to equilibrium. They'd been all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Right. And you, you got them back to not sobbing that, but you, as a comedian, there's no way you could read that in the moment. No. And I don't know what I would have done. Had I heard the story, if I'd, you know, been closer to the stage, right. they brought me out and
2: heard the story I think I probably would have said, you don't put a comedian on now, put a musician on. Yeah. You know. But I didn't have a choice. I went out.
1: No. I didn't know, but it worked out okay in the end. But like for, for 20 hours, I was miserable. I'll bet. Well, those are two very remarkable stories. Thank you very much. A, you, you met and exceeded the task there. Uh, what was your biggest challenge in shifting careers? Uh, my parents. Okay. Telling telling parents who <laughs> lived through the depression <laughs> and thought education
2: and financial security are the most important thing. Yeah. And I was throwing that all away to do something that might not pay any money. Yeah. That was the hardest part. But I, I worked out, my father was an accountant and I had a business plan. And I brought it to him and he he was always worried I would lose my house because when he was a kid and the depression hit, the bank took away the house he grew up in and the family of about, you know, 20 or 30 people were stuffed into a one bedroom apartment. So losing a house to him was the most frightening thing in the world. And to me, it would be like, you know, I lost my house and moved back into an apartment. Right. But didn't happen. I'm still in the surprisingly this many years later, still in the same house,
1: still in the game, too. That's uh, yeah. it, well you yeah, your parents obviously valued education a tremendous amount and spent a, a tremendous amount helping you acquire that. As parents, you just want your kids to be able to you know take care of themselves. Well, it worked out very well actually because I'm free you know in the day I work hard. I work a lot of hours, but
2: yeah on my schedule. so with free time in the daytime, my parents you know when they got old and needed a lot of looking after it was something I could do because I'd be around in the daytime. Sure. So I could take them to doctor's appointments. I could go, you know, if eventually at a home health aid, and if she called up one day and said, you know, we need toilet paper, I could be there in 15 minutes with toilet paper.
1: Little, little hidden advantages. Um, what about the truth is, full blown entitulitis will infect nearly 10 out of 10 men over the age of 37. For over 25 years, the National Entitulitis Foundation has waged a war against full blown entitulitis and its side effects. While medical advances make survival of the disease almost certain, the most embarrassing side effect, post-micturation dribble, known colloquially as pee drip, persists. There is no known treatment for PMD. But the folks at CalicoCuppants.com got you covered. They've created designs that mimic the pattern of small, round urine stains in your lower groin area. CalicoCutPants.com creates pants in a variety of colors and stylish fits, and all of them come with their trademark print to camouflage your PMD symptoms. Make living with endotelitis easier. Go to CalicoCutPants.com and buy a pair today. Standpoint, uh, if you think back to the beginning, what were the biggest challenges to overcome to become a stand up comedian? To go from, hey, you know, my the girl on the date with me thinks I'm pretty funny, to actually putting that into an act that people wanna wanna pay to listen to. Well, when I started in
2: stand up comedy, stand up comedy I say is one third writing, one third performing, and one third marketing. And you gotta be good at two of them. And when I started, I knew I was a good writer because I'd been writing jokes for a long time. I knew I, you know, that I knew how to write a joke. And I started by taking a class. And my, so I wasn't fearful that my jokes weren't good enough. I knew I was going to be a terrible performer because I was new. So I knew I, did, did, I would do the best I could, but the performance wouldn't be very good. My only fear was really forgetting my material. So for a long time, that was a fear and it's only happened to me twice, and both times I managed to get through it fine. But that—that—that that, that I think is the biggest challenge. Was the biggest challenge for me. But performing, you start out bad and you get good. Nobody starts out good at everything or anything. You think about it. The hard part of stand-up comedy is you compare it to a musician. So you get a kid who plays the violin or a guitar. They start when they're just a few years old, and they're going to be squeaky and terrible. But everybody encourages them because they're kids, and you expect that. In stand-up comedy. You start as an adult and people expect you to be good right away and it doesn't work that way. So you kind of suck at the beginning. Get over it.
1: Watching grown men and women fail isn't as cute as it is watching uh, little kids fail at the at the little performances they're doing when they're when they're just learning. That's a great point.
2: Right. Well, you don't even think of it as failure. You just think of it as oh that he's been playing the violin for a year. That's what a one-year violinist sounds like. But people expect a one-year stand-up comedian to sound like Jerry Seinfeld, and it's not going to happen.
1: Right. The other thing about musicians versus – and this isn't at all downplaying the difficulty of being a good musician, but when you're in a band, you get to keep playing the same songs over and over and over and over and over over again. Comedians don't necessarily get to tell the same jokes over and over and over and over again. You've got to keep people. want People see
2: Springsteen. They want to hear born to run for the most part.
1: People don't want to hear the same joke over again because there's no surprise in it. You'd written jokes for, uh, like the Jay Leno show and sent them in and had him uh, perform the jokes. Correct. Right. Like, right. Yes. And so did you feel liberated in some way from a writing standpoint? Cause I would assume that some of the things that you're needing to write for the Jay Leno show are current event type stuff. Things that. Uh, oh,
2: yeah. Everything I wrote for the tonight show is, was, was current events.
1: So you're panning from a stream with a lot of potential right yeah well every day a new
2: newspaper with new news lands on my doorstep. And then you had taken a class I took a class in stand-up comedy, but that was what when I started performing stand-up when I was writing jokes for TV was before started before that. So there was no class in joke writing that I took. It was just oh, here's this funny thing that happened in the news and here's my take on it.
1: Do you ever try to
2: impart that wisdom to others? I've done I haven't taught a class myself. I've helped other people teach classes and uh, at Gotham comedy club, they had an open mic night for a while. And when the the owner of the club started the open mic night, he said, I want to do something different. I don't want it just to be, you know, another back room of a bar comedians trying out their material, new material. So I said, why don't we introduce the idea of feedback? So the open mic there, and this has caught on a lot in a lot of other places is, you know, instead of doing five minutes of stand up that nobody listens to, and then the next person does it, You do three minutes of material, and then the other comedians give you feedback on your material. And so, that I was pretty senior for an open micer at the time. So, I was definitely helpful doing that. So, that was sort of teaching, but it wasn't formal.
1: When you do a corporate gig, uh, do you do any recon ahead of time? Like, I think I, I was thinking of, you know, like when Linda in accounting brings sauerkraut to lunch, you don't want to sit next to her. You know, do you talk to anybody ahead of time to try to find bits of, you know, funny? That, I, that specific type of thing I don't do
2: because Linda from accounting does not want to hear that her sauerkraut smells. Right. Uh, everybody yeah. will laugh except for Linda. And I don't want to make Linda miserable because she works in accounting. She's the one cutting my check. So, but I did, I do some research on the company. Sometimes they ask for custom material and I explain, if you really want me to sit down and write specific jokes, it's going to be very expensive, but you don't need that. If you, you know, if your company is some something, let's say you're an insurance company, I have an insurance joke. If it's a bunch of doctors, I have medical jokes. And all you need to do is open with one or two of those and maybe work one more in towards the end. And they will think the whole show is about them. They will forget that 90% of it was about me because they're going to remember the part that's about them. So I, you know, I did a show for an insurance company uh, a couple of months ago and they were a Swiss insurance company. And I managed to mix chocolate skiing and one of their products into, into uh, one of the jokes. That's great. Tell us about the uh, Ivy league of comedy. Okay. When I started in comedy, The the suggestion you get, because you need to get on stage to get better, and it's hard to get on stage because nobody wants a new comedian because you don't really have anything to contribute. So the advice you get is start your own show somewhere. And when I was doing shows at, you know, I was doing new talent nights at comedy clubs and the coworkers from the bank and some clients would come see me and they would say, you know, you were funny and you were clean. The rest of the comics were dirty and we want to use comedy as corporate entertainment, but everybody else is dirty. We can't bring people to these shows. Where are the shows that have only clean comedians? And there weren't any. And I said, oh, there's a demand for this product and no supply. So I'm going to start supplying it. And started I started producing shows, clean comedy shows at comedy clubs and for corporate events. And I wanted a name that sounded upscale. So I called it, and I went to an Ivy League school, so I called it Ivy League Comedy. And then one day we showed up at a theater and the marquee said, cause they got it wrong. It said the Ivy league of comedy. And I looked at that and I said, that is a much better name. Yeah, it is. So immediately changed
1: it and they went out of business and I'm still in business. So I guess it worked. Yeah, absolutely. My observation, tell me if I'm wrong, but my observation is it seems like you must have a pretty high degree of self-discipline to achieve at the thing. Like you you've done well at, at things that are not easy to do well. Uh, education at Ivy League school business and now stand-up comedy none of those things are are easy Do you think self-discipline is uh, your secret sauce or if not what do you think is?
2: I think every comedian has to have you know be self-disciplined because you can't be lazy and be self-employed it doesn't work I mean maybe if you're famous and you have an agent or a manager who arranges everything for you once you get to that point you can be as lazy as you want but to get to that point you can't be lazy especially because when you're a comedian you're the writer you're the performer sometimes you're the lighting and sound guy the stage manager you're the you know the bookkeeper you're the marketing guy you're the website designer you're the wardrobe person you do everything it, it's I, I was coming driving home for I was doing gigs in Maryland Virginia last weekend and driving home yesterday I heard somebody use the expression farm to table which of course I'm familiar with but I realized, the expression farm to table doesn't quite describe it because the farmer is not also driving the food to the restaurant <laughs> and cooking it. Yeah. The only thing that's farm to table is the food. Yeah. But it's different people. But a comedian is farm to table everything. The comedian is growing the food and cooking it. Yep. And serving it and cleaning up afterwards sometimes. Yeah. Brain to laughter.
1: That's, yeah, a, really. a, that's a little yeah. bit different. Maybe that's I just it. coined starts a through. phrase for you, brain to laughter. Well, yeah, it starts <laughs> in your head and, and goes to the audience. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about brain champagne? Uh, yeah, when I started in comedy, the web was not that new, but it was 2003 when I started. But
2: established comedians, some of them had websites. No novice comedians had websites, and I thought that was an oversight. Because if you want to get established, you might as well have a website at the beginning where people can read about you and watch videos and actually probably didn't have videos back then. It was probably audio files because people had dial up and the web was slow. So, but you know, a place to do that, have all that information and how to book you. So I I put a website together and I thought I could have my name. It could be SeanEli.com and people would spell Sean wrong. They'd spell Eli wrong. And since it was $50 per URL at the time, I didn't want to have to buy you know, six different combinations, and I wanted something memorable because every comedian's name, people see a comedian, they forget his name or her name, so I wanted a, a URL that was memorable, and I think of comedy as sort of like champagne for the brain, so I called it Brain Champagne, and people remember it, so it really is just a, a brand. There's nothing special about it, but when I, trademark, when I trademarked it, um the champagne people in France wrote me a nasty letter and told me I had to drop it and I wrote them a satirical letter and uh they left me alone.
1: Oh yeah. Well you you stuck with the upscale too. You know, Ivy League of Comedy, Brain Champagne. You've got right. it's not brain crappy sparkling wine from you know Detroit. <laughs>
2: oh ouch, ouch. Well, if there's, uh, good, if there's good sparkling wine from Detroit, I've not had it yet.
1: I'll turn you on to it. How about that? Okay. Send so yeah. me a case. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It comes in a cardboard box. No no wooden box. So, I would, I would be fine with that. And if it's
2: bad, I'll find something that can,
1: <laughs> I would say, clean my carburetor
2: with it. But it's been a long time since I've had a carburetor.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, what other projects do you have in the works, Sean? Uh, well, we just finished one. I just shot...
2: I just released on Amazon. The Ivy League of Comedy live from the Emmeline Theater is on Amazon. It's six comedians. There are six of us performing. It's a 90-minute show. There's also scenes of us talking backstage so you can hear what comics talk about when the audience isn't there. And also we do Q&A with the audience at the end. So the audience asked us questions. And I think it's 5 bucks to rent. Awesome. And that's on uh, Amazon? It's on Amazon. The Ivy League of Comedy live from the Emmeline Theater. Yeah, oh also my I would say my website brainchampagne.com, has a lot of information on it it's not just oh here here's you know here's Sean's photos there's over half a dozen performance videos and there's 50,000 words worth of jokes on my website and to give you an idea how much content 50,000 words of jokes is the average novel is under a hundred thousand words so that's a lot of jokes yeah you're prolific I also I send out an, a an email every month with original comedy and stories from the world of stand up, and you can subscribe for free on my website.
1: Sean, it has been a pleasure. You put joy into the world with barrels of laughs. That's just good, clean living, my friend. All the best in your endeavors. Brightsiders, please check out Sean on brainchampagne.com. It is a magnificent repository of comedy with the caveat only go there if you're interested in laughing.
2: No, actually, go there if you're interested in crying, and I
1: look forward to disappointing you. <laughs> Very good. Cheers. Thanks. Hey, Bright ciders, can you feel that? You're on the glide. Quick favor, though. Give the podcast a five-star rating and write a brief review for me, will you? Hit pause and do that. thank you. Also, please share us on social media or at a fish fry. The beer line at a sporting event would be a bright side crowd, maybe even in a support group. Wherever you see fit to spread the good word for us, please do. I appreciate you listening and as always, stay positive and keep looking for the bright side of things.
2: You dig it, do it. And if you really dig it, do it twice.
0: (laughs) Yo! Bring that fire, trench baby! One hey, fuck all the talking, you want me? Come give me my niggas, don't care if y'all the niggas toting. He wanna argue and text when I catch on my side, but The story be different in person. I'm trying to stay out that way with just me and the gang. I be busy, I'm running up tokens. Fuck all the distance, just send me the eddy and my niggas slide to something like lotion. Fat, 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 five, five, sixes. He got the leaning like he off the potion. He on the floor, steady begging for life. He was coughing up blue while we laughing and joking. I'm really sliding in something that's stolen. I had a talk with my brody, I'm chosen. I'ma get rich and I swear I'ma show him. He said keep rapping, so I'ma keep going. Exploring this city. And pop it, poppin', we scatterin' all like a human of roaches. Fuck all the hugs, bro. I'm tryna to stay focused. It ain't no love, I ain't showing emotion. Broke all the body, and he just been itching. When we in the street, we just caught in the rolling. Something like windows, we saw they open. Janitor boys, who the wedding, wet and soaked them. Fuckin' with hoes and me thinking what I guess You ain't heard about me, she wrote it. Chilling with demons, i skillin' for free. If a bag in the air, do you know they get on it? Never stay like it, forever they posted. And I remember them lights, you know, there are no lights, but I swear we ain't never had motion. Caught him at night, he was at a green light, but he you knew if you grab me the doctor, I saw so him. Get in that room and start talking. I was a young, getting a thug in love low with that money. My paper was sticking to folders. I'm on my way to the top, but I keep getting stopped because the devil could grab my shoulder. I be up thinking that night, so confused about life, and that changed ever since I got older. Fuck that, you got your pipe. Hop out that hoop and start up and it And he got the running from in his life. 30s and 40s, I'm tired of the talking. So don't bodies, it's on my life. Coming to shoot, I ain't coming to fight. You just be talking to you, never bothered, If you really bothered, I'm coming at night. Shout out your buddy, he next to the angels, and he really bigger than all of the fights. I got to switch, yeah, I'm in the dyke, Riding the Shockers and getting some money, I come from a struggle and riding bikes Me and my brother, we forever 30, you know we the toughest, you're rolling the dice